Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 481. And I'm joined today by someone who, as we discuss, I've I've been, been wanting to have on for a long time and j- just our diaries haven't matched up. It's been weird. I've been in talks with agents and all sorts and yeah, I'm glad we've finally done it. I'm joined today by Adam Kay, who is a wonderful comedian, a wonderful writer and formerly a wonderful doctor. If, if this is going to hurt, um, his first book just went crazy a few years back and I loved it. I adored it. I then adored the TV show. We talk about all of that and I'm loving his new book, Undoctored. So we basically had a lot to talk about and it's really interesting chatting with someone who's, his book blew up because of it was kind of like, this is going to hurt blew up because of the honest often sad truths about working as a doctor and the lack of support in the NHS and things like that. Um, and then we had the pandemic and everyone was out on the streets clapping for the NHS. And then a few years later, there's no pay rises. There's all sorts of lack of support again. So I don't know. It felt perfectly timed for this conversation. And it was worth the wait as well. I proper enjoyed this. As I mentioned, Adam is a wonderful comedian, speaker, r- r- writer. And as this comes out, there's still a few dates left on his his new, his latest tour, his current tour. So on November 3rd in B- B- Bournemouth, November 6th, Cambridge, November 9th, Nottingham, November 10th, Brighton, and November 14th, London, Apollo. Let's get on with the podcast, shall we? Obviously, before we do, we're brought to you as ever by speechdevelopmentrecords.com. That's where you can get all my merch, all reduced at the moment. Patreon.com forward slash Pip is where you can support on the Patreon for a dollar a month. And twitch.tv forward slash Yo is where you can catch me on the regular, acting a fool, chatting with you guys and live streaming my little heart out. Let's get on with it. This is episode 481 of the Distraction Pieces podcast with the wonderful Adam Kay. Right, I'm here today with Adam Kay, who I tweeted yesterday evening as I was doing my prep about my excitement about this, because I've been wanting to have you on for about five years, and we've come close a few times, and it's just been timings and schedules on my part a lot of the time. So I'm pleased to to be here ch- chatting with you. How are you? I'm really good. Yeah, I'm very excited about this as well. Big fan. Excellent, excellent. Uh, what's going on at the moment? Are you are you well? Are you calm? Are you you know in control of your life? Any of the above? I'm well. I'm four out of ten calm, which I think is that's as high as my calm. That's as right. as good as my calm gets. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm never in control of my life, but no. um, I don't know how I'd react if I was. It's um, I went from one life where I was a a, a doctor, sort of doing incredible numbers of hours a week you know not having any say in my destiny whatsoever work on christmas day or every night for a month or whatever mm-hmm. and uh and now i'm living the freelance existence where you learn to say yes to everything 
at the start yeah. when you're getting yeah. nothing and then you get you know I'm a bit lucky and now I get off a uh, you know I'm sort of life's all right but I'm still very scared to say no because what apart from yeah. your podcast obviously which I did yeah many many times in a row um but uh I'm scared to say no uh in case that's the last time anyone ever asks me to do anything and it doesn't seem to go away I completely understand it it's such a weird industry for that that even when you're doing well I really get a lot, particularly since I've moved in, in into acting. I'll get an audition come through, and I'll be overwhelmed that they've even asked me to audition. How? What an absolute honour! And every now and then, you have to sit back, and go, "No, this like you've done some good things. You're doing all right. Like you can pick the right things, and it doesn't have to be a oh, it's so kind of you to ask. <laughs> it can be a bit more. No, you, I, we have have value as well. You know." Yeah, it's hard, it's hard to it's hard to make that that mental switch, isn't it? Yeah, it's a really t- tough one. Well, before we get into your books, all of your your whole career, basically, I want to start by thanking you for naming your dog after me. Be- beautiful, beautiful <laughs> move. Um, tell me a little bit about Pip. So. Well- <laughs> uh, she's an Airedale terrier. We don't see a huge number of Airedale terriers around. All terriers sort of look the same, but Airedales are like the, the biggest model. Mm. It's like the yeah. seven series um, terrier. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and she's she's about two and a bit now. She was a lockdown dog. Amazing. Um, I know a lot of people made a, a lockdown dog mistake, but I think one of the best things that's ever happened to me, and uh, and not just in terms of the companionship. <laughs> Or, or the picking up shit, uh, but it's it's the fact that it forces me to get out the house. Um, yeah, you know, no, do at least an hour a day of wandering with the dog, which is really good for, for my sort of general washing my brain out. I'm exactly the same. We, me and my partner, got a rescue, a lockdown dog, and um, yeah, the best thing ever. Right? It's absolutely amazing. I think it's so it speaks so highly of our um as our low self esteem that <laughs> that we go well the dog needs exercise and fresh air and food and we didn't think that about ourselves oh no another no, I don't, another I don't living need organism <laughs> all of that we spent all our years just not giving ourselves the, that respect but a dog we're like yeah well he needs to run we need to get fresh air we need to go to nice places it's like all right that could have been for us all along Absolutely, and uh, I have I have proper long conversations with uh, with the dog. I mean, they're pretty one sided, yeah. But you know, I can be, do proper proper ten minute rant, and that's quite good as well for sort of the yeah. mental health side of things. Get a lot of stuff off my chest because I'm not talking to myself. Obviously, I'm talking to my dog. Exactly. I'm honestly this. I think the soppiest that I get when I'm alone with the dog because <laughs> he'll be, he'll just do something. It'll be really nice. And I'll just be so overwhelmed and, and, and give him all these compliments and just calm down, Pip. He doesn't care. Also, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, 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 I think some part of my brain does think she's a um, person. Cause I once thought I was, I was once out doing something and I saw something, I saw a squirrel or something. And I took a photo. I was like, I must text that to Pip. I'm like, no, no, I mustn't. I mustn't. That's deranged. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I've not had, our dogs are called F- Finley and I pray for the moment something happens. And I think I'll have to tell Finley about that later. <laughs> He'll love hearing about that. That'd be amazing. Well, um, to get on to onto you and and your career, if, if this is going to hurt. Absolutely blew me away. I read it over a series of solo visits to pizza restaurants in Portugal 
Um, I think I'd got that's, it in a preview copy. That's how it was copy. designed to be read. Yeah, I thought is what you'd kind of hoped. Yeah, you've always got a, an image of your of your reader in your head, and for me, <laughs> for me, it's pizza pizza restaurants in Portugal. Every time it was nice Italian pizza, two bottles of of Coke Zero glass bottles and your book and i'd just sit there for ages just just reading and just in awe of the of the stories and everything you kind of i mean there there is a school of thought that says it could put you off your nice italian pizza and glass bottle of diet coke yeah it goes to some places and i guess how was that to start to put all of that the down because when you've lived through all of that one of the things with any jobs like that or any industries really is you become numb to it it becomes normal it becomes the regular at what point did you kind of go i need to write all this down because this is fucking mad (laughs) (laughs) so i've kept diaries for a long 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 time right and i guess when i was writing this stuff down while i was doing the job i don't quite know why i thought i was writing it down but looking back at it, it was my way of coping. It was my pressure release valve, mm. or it was my way of dealing with a crap day by focusing on the funny or the dis- or the silly or the disgusting or whatever yeah. it is. And there's an offloading element there, isn't there, of getting it written onto a page, right? There, there, there is. It's a fo- it's a form of sharing, and it's yeah. not as good as you know, as talking to someone about it. But doctors yeah, yeah. are sort of trained not to want to talk about yeah. it and I've sort of come unstuck a bit as a as a result of keeping stuff in but it jangles around my head a little bit less if I get it down on paper and it is a coping mechanism of, of sorts but you know it's not that it's not the perfect coping mechanism yeah so, so so I guess obviously I want to talk about your new book as well but how was it when this is going to hurt blew up in the way that it did because the new book Un- undoctored um kind of talks a lot about the post-medicine pre um <laughs> any real success kind yeah. of kind of period so <laughs> that can be a tough period again i want to talk a load about that later as someone who's toured and done all sorts of other stuff where you're just trying to get by how was it when it blew up because it's multi-millions selling now and it was just yeah it was the the book of several i was going to say of that year but of several years you know so yeah how was it when it all all clicked in and made sense I mean, it was just extraordinary. I'd have to have quite an ego on me to think it would, uh, it would, you know, sell anything like how it did. And I think that really just speaks to the fact that it was a love letter to the NHS. And mm. I love the NHS, and clearly lots of other people love the NHS. Yeah. Plus, I guess we're a bit interested in like the unvarnished truth of someone's job. So we all yeah. know a bit about what we think a doctor does. We've all seen a doctor for whatever reason, but hearing the the stuff when they're, you know, when they're off duty or the yeah. stuff that you don't normally I think there's there's a certain interest in I mean you only have to watch telly. It's all policemen and doctors. Yeah. And I mean that's that's about half of it, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it really is. In terms and, of the and, dramas. And, and then there's that element of of, of of seeing a teacher outside of school, hearing these stories about what doctors are actually like and what actually goes on, it's like you don't hear that. As you touched upon, you're kind. Of, it's a profession where you're kind of encouraged to hold it all down and to keep it all yeah. in and and to not let any of that across. And it's it's a really weird one, man, because I've talked to a few different soldiers and stuff about that kind of thing, and I get yeah. it for the function of the job. I get that that can be important, but yes. for the person that is 
doing the job it's really dangerous and 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 really damaging so it's it's a weird one like i understand it because that's your job and you can't be there going oh this has been a nightmare tonight <laughs> i mean you can't you, you have to present a a calm and in control presence you do. If you I, can. Th- I think it can be slightly damaging the way that doctors think their patients want them to be mm. so yeah you're sort of trained as a doctor to present as totally infallible mm-hmm. because you're the person who's calculating a chemotherapy dose or yeah. you're the person who's making a millimetre accurate incision on a blood vessel or something. You think that that means that you have to be some kind of godlike person. Yeah. And then if you start believing that enough, you sort of stop thinking yourself as a as a human, the sort of person who get sick and get sad and has all their normal frailties and vulnerabilities because, you know, that sort of person might make, might make mistakes. But yeah. ultimately, everyone who's currently got the job title doctor at some point was just an idiot 18-year-old choosing some A-levels. Yeah, yeah, And of often course. have with no idea about what the job ahead of them was actually going to look like. Yeah, completely. And it's interesting because what we present is what we of- often draw out of others so confidence and and that control is good for someone who's nervous and about to go into a surgery i took my dad in for a surgery recently and i i drove him in and we were both you know it's a bit nervous i left buzzing because the doctor that came in was the most charming confident guy i'd ever met and was like yeah i do these all the time i do like four of these a day it's it's it was so <laughs> yeah, casual about it hear, isn't I was it? Like, that's my bread oh, and butter all right it's not that big a deal it's this is and, yeah. and again i think that did really breed that that affects a lot. So again, I can see the <laughs> I can see the positiveness of it. Yeah, but that's a different role. kind of bedside manner. It's yeah. all acting. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I you know I worked as an actor when I was on the wards, just like you work as an actor. Yeah, yeah. Now, except the difference is that if you're working on a, the wards, you're getting about four pounds an hour. But yeah. um, <laughs> the, um, but putting the patient at ease. So that person was being. They were sort. Of, I guess using humour a bit. You know, yeah. this is the you know the biggest day. You know of your life for months and months. Yeah. For me, it's my bread and butter. I yeah. come here, I do loads of them, I go home, you know, I'll, yeah. I'll have forgotten about this. And that's... that's For me, that's... it's 2pm. That's it. <laughs> yeah. It's 2pm, yeah. that's it. It's, that's, this is what I'm doing at two. It's not a big deal. And it's about... I know, it's about pitching it right for the for the patient. And that doctor sounds brilliant because he pitched it yeah. absolutely right. The old-fashioned version is a, you know, is a bloke in a bow tie saying, you know, don't worry, it's going to be fine. And I don't, I don't know if that, I don't think that works anymore. The old fashioned version was the man in the bow tie telling you what's going to happen. And you say, okay, yes, yes, doctor. Hmm. I think you're much more likely to have faith and, you know, take the medicine or go for the therapy or whatever it is, if it's been a conversation. Yeah. And it's more human. Yeah. Because it's, medicine's about communication. That's what the job is. Yeah. The kind of um, bow tie, the authority of the bow tie wearing, well spoken gent has been destroyed over years of Tory governments, <laughs> where bow tie wearing, well spoken gents have lied to us and completely <laughs> screwed everyone over. It's it's no longer that reliable v- no. voice anymore. No, you ru- you you run from the bowler hat, right? Yeah. So yeah, exactly. It's changed now because again, it used to be that newsreaders. Pilots was always the famous one. You want a posh, a posh, in control voice to come in, a male voice, and all that. And it's like, I think that that stereotype is 
is l- long gone because we've seen well-spoken They've rich stolen buffoons. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's what bank robbers look like these days. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's a bow tie rather than a, a stripy top and a swag bag. Yeah, it's switched completely. Well, I, I mean... Another thing I want to talk about, and again, it's it's I feel like a like a professional interviewer here rather than someone just that just talks to people a lot. But um, it ties in your new book, and you know, post this is going to hurt because when the book blew up, as you said, it was even more successful than you could have imagined. You got to tour it a lot, and I think again, your shows and 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 tours, you had the advantage of years of going up and down the country on stage as a stand-up, whereas a lot of authors haven't quite got that. I've been to some book tour-type events that have been incredibly dry or incredibly hit and miss. Like, depends on the night, depends on what on what unfolds. But you had that side already, right, in I your back did. pocket. I mean, for, I don't think most authors sit down at their desk in their garret and write their their novel thinking oh great one day I'm going to have to stand up and you know in a in a converted church in Bath and read out loud for 20 minutes it's like yeah it's this bit's gonna kill (laughs) (laughs) it's it's almost the opposite of the author mentality yeah Um, completely and in fact this is going to hurt in its first iteration was a live thing so about how long ago was it now? Six, seven years ago now, the junior doctors uh, went on strike. Mm-hmm. And I suspect it may be coming again. And um, and the doctors went on strike because there was a contract being imposed on them that was unfair. And it was unfair to such an extent that it was going to affect, you know, their hours. And they were saying that it was going to be basically unsafe for patients. And that mm-hmm. is, you know numbers one to ten on your priority list if you work in the in the healthcare yeah. profession how does this impact on the on the patients so, you know almost always that comes for how is that going to impact on me and doctors have quite a quiet voice compared to the government who've got this you know access to the entirety of the media and i i could see this playing out and the government were going on the radio and saying the doctors are striking because they're being greedy and they want more money and that was just it was maddening Mm. to to hear it was just it was just a lie and the doctors lost the battle and lost the war and ends up with this contract imposed on them and i thought if people knew what it was like you know actually working on the wards then it would be impossible the thought that anyone would believe anyone saying that you know they're in it for the cash yeah and um so i went up to the edinburgh fringe where I'd, i'd been up a bunch of times before with 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 various bits of comedy and i stood on stage and i read out from my diaries you know sort of um, but by the way most of my diaries were were just absolute garbage you know it was like did cesarean section number 487 and stuff like that um but i found ones that i thought explained what the life of a doctor's actually like some of the funny stuff and silly stuff but also some of the ways it affects you as a as a human and how, you know, doctors are human. And so, and I read, I read that out on, on stage and I thought, you know, that's a hundred and something people every night for 30 nights. That's a few thousand people who will never again think that doctors are, are greedy. Yeah. And so I thought that was, that was that. But um, a friend of mine, Mark Watson, comedian, uh, you, you know, you go and see each other's shows where you're up there, you know, see, you know support your mates. His plus one, was uh, a publisher who came up to me afterwards to say, 
you wasn't expecting to you know to to be you know on duty and looking out for books but said you know how much of this have you got yeah. and I was like yeah I think I might there might be a book in there so it came about in a in a weird way but its first presentation was was live I love that and I love the the organic nature of that but and again and and also the the keeping the romance of the fringe alive because everyone goes up to the fringe expecting to have s- someone in the crowd that gives yeah. them that moment and then so many comedians get beaten down and it doesn't happen and there's so much competition and it's so expensive and yeah um, i mean the, the fringe is very you know there needs to be a big shift in how it operates it seems yeah. to be a money making machine that that exploits people at the start of their careers who can't afford to have you know and shouldn't have you know it, and somehow it, that seems to have only got worse after the pandemic it seems to have come back even harder for working class people to go up there and, and put on a show and make a living it's impossible i think i think we're not far away from it being the fringe of 50 years ago where it was only people from a certain college in oxford who put yeah. on a show because it's yeah. the you know i'm i'm in a better financial position now you know being honest than you know than when i i first went up there but the costs of staying there are wincingly expensive. Mm-hmm. Like you're paying so much for a room that you think you should have a swimming pool or like a view of the Algarve yeah. or something. Yeah. And and th- this year I, I only went up for a few days. I did the same. I did a couple right. of days and I felt, wow, I'm privileged to be able to pop here for a couple of days because it's crazy, even that. So, yeah. It's crazy. And also the, the maths of it just doesn't work. So... I'm, I'm touring now. I've got a new tour going around. And I went up to the Fringe for three nights, plus a spare one to see some other stuff, to try out my new stuff because there's no better place. There's no yeah. better audience. You know, yeah. they, you know, they love comedy. And, and I played in a, it was a reasonably big room. It's uh, at the Pleasant's like 200 seats. So in the, the, the Fringe scheme of things, that's pretty, yeah. pretty big. Actually, I think it might have been 300 seats actually. But it was, you know, it was, it was, it was proper. And it sold out, which was nice. But it lost money. I went up for three days, played played to 900 people in three nights or whatever it was. Yeah. And because of the cost of the venue and the this and the that and the accommodation and the travel, it lost money. It's like... Madness, uh, isn't it? Yeah. But anyway, so for all the Fringe's faults, it absolutely transformed my career in every way. Yeah. I mean, and it probably wouldn't have, definitely wouldn't have happened anywhere else. So, yeah. Um, yeah. It's a mad one, isn't it? I was, I was, you said that most writers don't sit down expecting to have to speak this work out loud on a tour or whatever else i was gonna say most writers also don't sit down and expect their work to be turned into an amazing tv show but that is more and more the norm these days of of or one of the goals of of trying to make a success of things so how was it when this is going to hurt got picked up by the bbc and how was that just to work on and to get through because i watched it earlier of this year i took a while to get it watched but it was perfect because it was far enough away from reading the book and then ben wishaw is just a national treasure already and i just thought yeah it was astounding it all felt fresh and just was yeah it was it was perfect oh it's really kind of you to say it wasn't i mean i don't think i had an adaptation in my mind when the book came out you know you sometimes read a book like a you know, like a, a crime book, and uh, which is a lot of what I read is um, yeah. is crime. I love love all that stuff. And you know, you get to the end, and there's a cliffhanger, and you know, you can sort of you can already picture it on the screen, and that's you know, and yeah. that's the end of the episode, or that's when we go into the ads. Because my book was in one person's voice, and you know, was basically 
a few hundred little chunks of anecdote. Yeah. It wasn't like a natural adaptation. And so it involved sort of slightly rethinking what it would what it would be. And ultimately, I needed to decide what I wanted it to be about. Like pick some aspect mm. of the the experience of being a doctor and zoom in. And so I zoomed in on a particular time as a doctor where I was sort of somewhere in the middle. I had people underneath me, there were people above me. And I wanted to tell the story, a bit like we were talking about before, about mental health. Mental health of doctors is a big taboo. And this is a huge spoiler for the show. So um, <laughs> so start, you know, whatever you do, mute for 10 seconds now if you've not seen it and you want to. But towards the end of the the series, there's a suicide of a junior doctor. And that was the the first scene that I wrote. And I knew it all had to lead up to that and then how it all paid off afterwards. As I wanted to turn something that was an absolute taboo that never gets spoken about into something unavoidable that we pumped into millions. And I think 8 million people watched the first episode. And, you know, what a privilege to have the chance to um, to explore that. And, and that's all thanks to the BBC. No one's got reach like yeah. the BBC. And, you know, much like the NHS, they're these big, underfunded, unwieldy, imperfect, but still wonderful institutions. And, and essential institutions. Yeah. The... the, the the thing, uh, not, I mean, it sounds like I'm going to get a flag out, but the things that actually make Britain great, it's, it's, it is, it's, it's the BBC and the freedom and the, the not having to focus solely on numbers and viewership, the, the responsibility to be creative and push b- beyond just, oh, what's the biggest thing at the moment? Oh, it's reality TV. Everything has to be that yeah. or yeah. whatever else. And same with the NHS the responsibility to look after everyone and not just those. The purity of the idea. Yeah, yeah. You know, the NHS is the purest possible version of healthcare. Yeah. Um, It's free at the point of service. It's based on your clinical need and it's never based on your bank balance. I'm not pretending that... You know, it's perfect because we all know. Same it's with the not. BBC. Again, it's, exactly it's not the same perfect. With BBC. Yeah. It's not. It's not perfect. But I mean, there's always an appetite to get rid of this kind of institution from people who are somehow threatened by it or have money to be made. You know, were it a different model. But I mean, we won't realise how much we miss it until it's gone. Yeah, I completely agree. I can completely agree. Well, before we get properly into the new book. Top three, four, f- five f- things you've taken out of someone. What comes to mind? <laughs> what, what's the first things that that jump out to you? I mean, um, Christmas lights, which uh, amazing isn't particularly impressive uh, until I say that they've been turned on and caused uh, some internal wow. burns. Where was th- I, I assume the plug was out already? Uh, yeah, yeah. By the time oh, you know, I think. But by the time the head is into the car, they didn't like put it in like the like the cigarette lighter in the yeah. in the car to keep it going. <laughs> and I think I, 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 there's some gag in the book about uh, brings new meaning to the phrase. I, I put the Christmas lights up myself. Yeah. Um, and um, I mean, this it's, so I do get asked about objects in orifices because obviously we're fascinated it's, by it's, it, aren't it's we? Very obviously. very funny. There's there's no way around it. It's definitely funny. And you know, sometimes you know, I'll be 
I'll be speaking to a, a more po-faced interviewer who will say, you know, did that really happen? That person with the, you know, toilet brush or whatever. Yeah. And I'll say, yeah, yeah, that happened. And um, if I ever speak to doctors about it, they'll be like, oh, that's nothing. Here's my top five uh, extraordinary things that I removed from a, from a patient. It's uh, you collect them as a, as a doctor. It's, it's doctor's Pokemon. I, I, I love it. And there's a brilliant one in This Is Going To Hurt, which I won't give spoilers to, because again, I can't recommend it enough on iPlayer, all easy to to binge. Um, well, speaking of the book and speaking of, of of This Is Going To Hurt, we've spoken about kind of the power. You you mentioned 8 million people watching, and I think that's the power of dramatisation and even sitcom or whatever else over necessarily documentaries or panorama specials and things like this i think there is something that draws people in and i'm binging at the moment a show called the bear which is absolutely amazing started it it's astounding and yeah as you were mentioning the where you were when the 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 part of your story that's told in this is gonna hurt it made me think of kitchens not just because you both wear white because there are these hierarchies and you are you're hugely important to the person below you or hugely in power of the person below you Mm. and you're almost worthless to the person above you and it's such a a a weird comparison and as i said the reason i'm linking this into the book is i found it fascinating when you touched upon something i hadn't thought of and that's dissection I'm, i'm saying it right you, you are, were very yeah, clear dissection, in the book. not dissection, yeah. Um, as a lifelong vegetarian. And again, it may make an insulin, but like, <laughs> just thinking of, of, of kitchens as well. It's something I'd never thought about, but it's a really weird thing, right? So you would never have cut into flesh as such. and, and No, not, all, since, all I think not since the age of three or four. Yeah. That was, yeah, that was the, you know, that was the first, for want of a better word, meat that I had, you know, I'd used a, a, a knife on. And in, easily uh, the meat you've cut into the most is human meat. How, what a strange and oh, unique yeah. thing to have as yeah. your... Not many people yeah, can make that claim. Yeah, I, t- I, don't, I don't like it. I don't like it. <laughs> it doesn't sound, it doesn't reflect well, does it? No, no, but it's... However it, good my intentions, that yeah, sounds horrible. But it's a fascinating thing because it must have, again, it's quite a, a, a unique position. And, and, and you talk early on in the book of the, um, of those student years and that kind of time and how strange and overwhelming it can be how visceral the overwhelmingness can be of sights of sense of everything Mm. yeah and that's probably magnified by the lack of steak or 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 whatever else that you've experienced there's probably a level of desensitization yeah there's I think desensitisation is why medical students, teenagers for the most part, 18-year-olds fresh out of school, are sent into these uh, rooms and stood round a cadaver and told, you know, make a nice big incision all the way down the front of the ribs and, you know, reflect that and remove that and saw that. You, very early on, it does two things. You... You stop thinking of this as a person, unfortunately, because mm-hmm. you can't, because yeah. otherwise you would faint or vomit or something. And it encourages a sort of horrible gallows sense of humour. And everyone develops it as a coping mechanism for this, you know, it's not natural for an 18-year-old to be, to be, to be cutting up someone's gran. That's no. not right. No, no. And it's only recently that um, dissection has fallen off the 
the syllabus in medical schools, but there's still a whole really? bunch of medical schools that still do it because actually there are much better ways to know and learn human anatomy. Right. There's something called prosection where an expert, you know, one expert cuts something up great and points, um, you know, points up this, this ligament and this artery right. and, that, and, that, um, and that nerve and that vessel. And you can learn from 3D visualizations, yeah, like like an MRI, basically, where you sort of scroll up and down slices wow. of a of a body, and you know, and you can learn it all that way. And there are models, and there are all sorts of things. And I, and VR is now coming in as a as a way of learning the body. Wow! But yeah. medicine was very reluctant to um, to get rid of the dead person on a on a trolley route. And I think it is, like I say, because. It has uses far beyond what you may or may not learn in terms of, you know, anatomical structures. Yeah. The, the way it's been taught hasn't changed a lot over the years. Um, I talk in the book about being the first year in, in my medical school to get taught communication skills. And wow. we were saying that, that communication is the cornerstone of medicine. It seems almost unthinkable that you yeah. could try and teach medicine without communication. And I, there's, a, there's stories about, you know, that how that was taught and sort of, uh, you know, interviewing actors pretending to be patients and relatives and stuff like that. And it was all reasonably humiliating. But my main memory of communication skills was being on the wards, you know, trailing around some surgeon you know there's there's the, there's the senior doctors and then the junior doctors and then behind them like a row of ducklings a few medical students and it was time for us to all go off to a communication skills class and i said to the this consultant surgeon i'm, I'm really sorry we're going to we're going to have to to dash off now communication skills and this old boy said you can't teach communication skills you've either got it or you don't which was quite quite telling they're clearly yeah were slash are people who couldn't even understand the the value of, of of learning how to do the most basic thing a healthcare professional has to do and doctors aren't recruited at medical school on the basis of their communication it's all on uh, very exclusionary things like you know a level results and do you play the cello you know which yeah. demonstrates i don't know what that demonstrates and you know have you done work <laughs> experience which also limits the pool of people to the to people whose parents are mates with other doctors. and yeah. Whereas what they should be doing is dropping the A-level grades. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not saying dropping them away completely. You need to have, you know, a certain level and people want their doctors to have a certain, you know, level of, you know, academic ability, I guess. But you'll get a much better bunch of doctors if they better represent the, the patients they're seeing. The patients will much yeah. prefer speaking to someone who they can relate to. They're going to be talking about the most often the most personal, difficult, emotional things. And often patients don't say everything. You know, I'm a very bad patient. I talk a lot in the book about being a bad patient. And if I don't have the rapport with the doctor, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say my, you know, my Columbo thing at the end and my, my, the final thing that I actually was going to the doctor about and I've saved to the end and I'm waiting for the the big moment and then it never came through. And it never comes because you're like, oh, what if they judge me or what if they're sniffy or what, you know? So I think, I think it's so important and hope, hopefully that's changing. One of the things I find really fascinating about the medical world is the juxtaposition between the huge value of the experience of those senior doctors who've been there a long time, have been doing this, have seen so much, versus the younger doctors who may not have the experience. But as you're saying now, 
may have been taught in different ways and taught new things and 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 and, and new approaches because medicine is a constantly or it's meant to be a constantly evolving thing and we're meant to be constantly learning and improving so <laughs> how what like, like it's touched upon in the in in the series and in the book how is that to kind of live through to be aware that there might be some things that you may know best on but then you also have to quickly concede that there's other things that that, that these guys will know that that you can't possibly have experienced at that early stage i don't think I spent a lot of my time when I was a brand new doctor thinking I knew best about anything. Yeah. I was mostly terrified. And one of the most useful things that I was taught in my first few weeks as a doctor was by a nurse who said, if you don't know something, tell the patient you don't know it and you're going to get help. And I saw people time and time again fall foul of trying to, you know, pretend they're better than they are and actually no one the patients don't mind being told i'm sorry you know that's i'm going to get i'm going to get someone else i'm going to get my boss because they you know they appreciate the honesty and i think the i don't know it's like a lot of medical school is quite book based mm-hmm. it's like i don't know it's like training to be a mechanic from manuals yeah, yeah. and then on day one you've got your first cortina and yeah. you're like oh this is different to in the in the book and um, and, you know, and by the way you're the pit team on a on a race oh yeah oh yeah yeah exactly. <laughs> you've not got all day on this you're really this is it get in it get stuck in and it's it's real deep end stuff because there is no way to learn so much of this stuff than learning on the job yeah and um, by the time I qualified as a doctor, I hadn't ever put in a, a drip, you know, you know, mm. a Venflon, you know, back of the hand, you know, need some fluids in, needle goes in, tube stays there, bag of water. Yeah. I'd never done it. And then I was doing my first night shift and um, I had this sort of panic that oh, I've not actually. So one of our, we, we were living in hospital accommodation and one of the, one of the flats went to the wards, nicked a, a little box of, of uh, these, these drip things, Benflons, they're called, and, uh, and we, we practised on each other. Wow. You know, for a few hours. And then um, and by the end, we could, we could do it. So the first time I had to go on the ward, you know, for that night shift, you know, I had now cannulated someone, put, put in a drip. I did have track marks um, up and down my arm, which wasn't the ideal uh, look, uh, yeah. f- you know, following that. But... Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's a it's a it's a practical job, and um, yeah, you. The other thing that there's no substitute for is what doctors refer to as like from the end of the bed. So the first the first assessment you make is from the end of the bed, and you right. just get this vibe of how sick are they, mm-hmm. and that comes with experience. You know, it logs into your like the the AI system in your in your brain that you're not even aware of you know yeah. you've seen 30,000 patients over the last couple of decades and 300 of those have been really sick and you just spot the little tells yeah and that's something no doctor when they start has got a, a grip on and there'll be some people who they who they over worry about and some people much worse they under worry yeah. about and so that's that's something else and then there's the like the surgical skills you know, by the end of my time working on labour ward, which is where I spent most of my career, I was pretty good at uh, 
a cesarean section because that was the main operation I, I I did. I think I was very sort of competent and confident there. But first time was absolutely terrifying. And I think it, you know, I think it probably took the best part of an hour to get the, you know, the the baby out and everything mm. sewn up again because that's practical skills. It's like it's playing the trombone. It's going to be a, a bloody mess the first time you, you know, chuck a trombone on your face yeah. and then after you've done your 10,000 hours or whatever you can play the, the you know the Johnny Briggs tune and everyone you know <laughs> and everyone's everyone cheers happy. everyone's <laughs> happy well I mean speaking of, of 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 that experience then I guess one of the things that's touched upon beautifully again I keep in the book and in the series um is the <laughs> is how damaging it can be to you when it it goes wrong and you say yeah. about that instinct you get the that can be thrown off. And ever since I left HMV, which I worked in for years, I've had a recurring dream of going back there as a part-timer and having the tough balance of being a part-timer, but like responsibilities-wise, but management skills and knowledge-wise, and the weight of having to return to retail from the filthy world of show business. Yeah, And that's annoying, but as jobs to return to in your dreams go, it's not too harrowing. Like retail isn't too harrowing, whereas the the labour ward and the worst moments in the labour ward or even the worst imagined potential moments in the labour ward from the sounds of it is a fucking horrible place to return to in your dreams and in your you know in in your mind so how is the kind of the coping and the support of the PTSD side of 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 this job because again I'm making this a really long question here and I apologize but I've talked to police officers about the lack of help and guidance when it comes to PTSD. And I think the medical world is probably further behind than that, I guess, right? I, I would say it's 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 pretty shocking. Despite the them possibly being a couple of offices down. Like <laughs> like, mm. like the help that you need could yes. be could be within the same building. Yeah. I mean, you're making the mistake of thinking that doctors might be good patients. Yeah, doctors yeah, are the yeah, worst, yeah. worst patients. I mean, just things I've talked about in in Undoctored. It's touched upon um, beautifully and undoctored in your complete dismissal <laughs> of signs. <laughs> like I've, 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 I've ignored a spinal injury that left my right leg not working for for a week. I've, you know, you I've continued a holiday, a, you madman. <laughs> uh, I did continue a holiday. It does it. It doesn't look great written down on paper, but it made sense to me at the time. And you know, all sorts of things. And like I've sort of hoped against hope that uh, I sort of my body would somehow sort out a urinary stone that was was plaguing me. And um, yeah. and so that's what I'm like with my physical health. How likely is it for me to seek help for my mental health? And the answer mm. is very, very unlikely. I don't know if what I had after leaving medicine was strictly PTSD because I never saw someone at the time to say this is this is your diagnosis. And also, I don't think I was ever really concentrating that much in my psychiatry lectures in order to, you know, to make my, the diagnosis on myself. But yeah. I left medicine essentially after a pretty awful day at work. And, you know, as you've suggested, a bad day at work in retail isn't as, ba- as bad as a, a bad day in work uh, in the medical profession. And I won't go into all the, all the details, but, you know, I was the most senior doctor working on a labour ward. All we ever want is a healthy mum plus a healthy baby and this was one of these terrible situations where we ended up with um with neither thing and I would wake up a couple of times a week middle of the night back in that operating theatre you know litres of 
blood and, you know, I'm covered in a cold sweat and my heart's going hundreds of beats a minute and I, I can't get back to sleep and I don't, I don't even want to get back to sleep in case I go back to sleep and I return to that nightmare. And, and it plagued me and, and I don't have it now. And the thing that's different now is I talk about this stuff. Yeah. Um, I talk about it to professionals and I'm very open, you know, and when on chats like this, you yeah. know, I, yeah. whereas old me, I would, would, you know, would make a joke or pretend there was nothing the matter. But at the time, there wasn't really an infrastructure within hospitals to help. There was no like routine debrief. The culture was simply one of you're a bloody doctor and you bloody get on with it. Mm. Stiff up a lip, stiff drink and off you march. And that's not enough. It's just not. No. It's it's really not. And again, I think there's so many things that you touch upon that that need changing or are changing. And one of the things, again, in un, Undoctored, I'm, I'm purposely not just kind of trying to get you to tell stories from your new book, because I think people should buy your new book and go <laughs> through it. So I'm, I'm kind of re- <laughs> referencing things as much as possible and not just going, tell them about when this happened. But w- one of the surprisingly most heartbreaking things for me was when you talking about the general homogenization of individuals in that world and having to and I loathe to use this sentence and phrase but <laughs> hide your light under a bushel yeah because as a as as a as a gay g- gentleman it wasn't necessarily encouraged for that to be obvious as such and again it's it's a really weird one because again we've touched upon it earlier where there's certain things that it's like that shit, but then as you also touch on, sadly, you do have to deal with the general public who can be constantly surprising with how sheltered they are or how yeah. bigoted they are. And social media will teach you that on a daily basis. Um, <laughs> so there is an element of, there was an element of me reading it going, I kind of understand that, but you kind of painting one finger now to kind of have that little thing to say, I'm me. I'm not just this white coat person. Was fucking heartbreaking to to read, man. It's medicine. I think is quite old fashioned in the worst meaning of the yeah. of the word. And <laughs> yeah. I think referring to it as a as a homogenization process is is spot on. People arrive at medical school from all corners of the country, from all corners of the world, with their varied experiences and accents and over the course of five six years of training it all gets sanded down and the edges got, get knocked off and everyone ends up with this kind of doctor voice yeah and what what you're referring to was uh i think hopefully now this will be unthinkable and no one would would dream of doing it so i was i was on my first day working on the you know working as a medical well, not working turning up as a medical student <laughs> with a uh you know uh, and I introduced myself to the um, the consultant surgeon, you know, we, all, the, all, all the medical students, and um, and this arsehole kept me behind afterwards and told me that um, I wouldn't be going on his ward, seeing his patients with hair like I had. Mm. And this was pre-Facebook, so I thought there was no evidence of this haircut. <laughs> but then... Uh, then I eventually found my young person's rail card from that era, which is published in the in the back of the yeah, yeah. book as my author photo. And <laughs> yeah. I mean, 
it wasn't a strong look. It was. I'm refreshing uh, myself. I'm going. I've got. I've got it right here. So yeah, <laughs> on the on the back flap. Up, I mean, yeah. it's yeah, it's sort of like frosted tips, and you know that was you know that was the fashion at it one wasn't point. Offensive. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. It was. It was, and it was you know it was part of the way that I expressed myself and was you know tried to look a bit different. I, th- I think I, I looked like a sort of sort of badly damaged waxwork of Justin Timberlake or something. But I was, uh, <laughs> but in my head, you know, that was that was me. And I said, oh, I'm really sorry. I'll get that. I'll, I'll get that sorted at the weekend. He's like, no, you'll. It's a hospital. I think you can find some scissors. And so I, um, I did my own remedial haircut in a toilet in a in a hospital, and uh, and that's that's horrible. And I, I I spoke to someone at the medical school about it at the time. You know, one of the a sort of pastoral person, and they and they said, yeah, that's not it's not that's not good. It's not right, but what do you want to do? Who's going to get sacked? Him or you? Yeah. yeah. And we were basically taught in medicine, the way to survive was to be quiet and mediocre, mm. you know, don't make a fuss, don't complain. And that's, and that's dangerous. That's, you know, that stops people, you know, whistleblowing when they see, you know, harm and, and, and danger. It's not good. And um, there was even a, um, I quote a, a, a passage from a um, book that was written for GPs. Going the to, 2012 you know, Guide to Passing cl- Clinical Exams. Don't worry, I made notes because yeah. it blew my mind. For any listeners who are sitting in the warmth and comfort of the thought that it was just one bag egg or a few bad eggs, I mean, was, yeah. the, the, the two things I noted was that it was advised Asians and African students to adopt a Scottish or Welsh accent. Um, and gay people to make sure their mannerisms, gait, and speech weren't too overtly gay. It's not great, is it? It's not. It's really not. And to be clear, and again, you make it clear in the book, that wasn't an NHS bit of it wasn't, a, you know, a documentation, it wasn't, but it, it was a guide was that was that widely people, used. Yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah. and it was mind the, blowing. Yeah, and, and and shameful and 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 shocking. And you know, hopefully, ten years on from that, you know, there's much less of it. But there are. There are still dinosaurs roaming the wards. Yeah, it's a mad one. Well, I mean, we're getting towards the hour mark, so I'll I'll start to... To a quarter of the way there. To, <laughs> we're, yeah, we're just beginning. I'll start <laughs> to kind of go towards wrapping things up, but one of the things that came to mind, again, as we were talking earlier about um, what authors are expecting when they sit down to write a book, and we've spoken of the pressures of being on wards... How was the pressures of kind of following up as such? Obviously, there has been other books, but this feels like the follow-up to this yeah. is, is going to... Following up a book that's that big and that successful, out of nowhere kind of thing, yeah. and following up a book that got turned into a TV series. So there's there's always that pressure of, are you writing a book? Are you writing series two? Are you writing series three or four? You know, there's there's a lot of different things there. And to put your mind at ease... It reads as someone who's sitting down to write another book, and that's it. So it's beautiful Good. that none of those pressures yeah. come across. But they're real, man. Like when you've had that, like you sitting down to write this is very different to you sitting down to write this is going to hurt. That's, that's that's absolutely true, and I'm so grateful to my editor and everyone at my publishers for never putting pressure on me to do anything other than write. The book I want to write, and what I, you know, and something from the from the heart that means something to me that I would be proud to, you know, to you know, 
to have conversations about because I think in the creative industries, you know, in whatever medium, anything that's generated cynically, you can sniff that a mile off. Mm-hmm. And I just, I didn't want to, you know, write a book that was designed by a marketing department about what the people yeah. who like that old book are going li- to want to read now. So it's, yeah. it's different in a lot, in a lot of ways. And, you know, it's, it's got some, there is, there are some similarities and hopefully the, you know, the, the humor and some of the, you know, the darkness and some of the, the sadness, you know, is, is, is shared. But um, the pressure is relieved a bit by actually the success of this is going to hurt because chances are nothing I do in my life will have that level of, sure, you know, sure. it was, you know, it was, it was such a, it was such a big thing in the world of, non-fiction that for me to exceed that would be you know would be you know that's winning the lottery twice yeah and so I'm, I'm I'm proud of what I wrote it's very honest and personal as well as hopefully shining a light on some some bigger issues that affect not just doctors but also I realized when I was writing it that there's a lot of people who think about blowing their life up and I wonder if that increased during the pandemic And asking the question, you know, what happens when you do press the fuck it button and what's what what life looks like the the day, the week, the month, the year after after that, because it's it's not always smooth sailing. But I think if you're doing something that isn't right for whatever reason, and for me, it was the job was was destroying me i think a bit it's also for i guess it's also for people who wonder what what life would be like if you if you do change every aspect of it yeah i completely agree and i think there's so many people that have jobs that they see as a means to an end and that's absolutely fine but you have to at least have the end part on the table have the option of going right i'm going to walk away from this actually this is this is going to end and it might not be it might end up that this is what you do want to keep doing and it's it's comfortable and whatever else but you have to have that there to go well actually maybe now's the time to to press the the fuck it button as you say life should be a choose your own adventure book yeah rather than just page one through to page 75 then get your you know your your gold carriage clock and 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 retire and you know and downsize yeah. to a bungalow and and you you'd know, be whatever. surprised how many times you can keep your thumb in the page and turn back and go all yeah. right no 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 that didn't work let's go let's, let's go back let's go back yeah you know my career trajectory looks absolutely bananas yeah. you, no, no one would plan that i suspect <laughs> i don't know what being a careers advisor looks like these days but it must be different very different to when we were at school and the expectation is you do one of these approved list of 15 20 jobs and you do it for 40 years and then you stop yeah and I don't know what my next move is going to look like but I do know that it has to be something that I enjoy or it you know it gives gives me something in in return and you're the you're the same you're a you're a chameleon yeah 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 it's it's why it's why i've turned down numerous times doing speeches at events or at student things where they want me to advise on careers it's like i've never had a clue what the fuck i'm doing man i can't get up there and lie to them either and and it's not the best advice you know it can be equally damaging to say throw everything away and just go for it because 
that will work for some people. It will ruin the lives of others. It's and yeah, I'm not. Yeah. I don't want to be the one that's that's made them do that. I say, here's what I did, but yo, you do you. I'm not. I'm not the guy there. But speaking of walking away from things, one of the things I really wanted was excited to talk to you about was leaving in silence, mm. and it's resonated throughout my lives from jobs. We used to call it the office space because of the film office space where, where he just decides to stop going to work today yeah. and that's it. He doesn't quit. He doesn't He just stops going in. But I'm a big fan of it at parties, at social events. Just oh, every wedding. Not making every a wedding big I've deal. ever been to. Yeah. I literally had it at a wedding last weekend and my my mum was there and was like, oh, you're leaving? Well, we'll go around and say goodbye to everyone. I'm like... It's not a big deal not. that I'm leaving. It's not a yeah. big deal that I'm leaving. I'm not. I'm not. It's not my day. You know. Yeah. So I'm a if big fan of leaving. leaving in, yeah. Then, yeah. Then we should all be aware. We should give a little <laughs> clap. But I'm good. But yeah. How <laughs> how big a part of your life has that been? I guess the, the joy of of walking. As I said you left after a horrible day, and you kind of didn't go back as such. It was kind of yeah. Well, I I limped on for a bit. Yeah. And we talked earlier about you know, under-investigating versus over-investigating and what's and what's bad. After I left medicine, I was a terrible doctor because I intervened too much. Right. So I thought, I can never have a disaster on Labour Ward ever again. And that means at the first sign of anything looking remotely, you know, abnormal, the tiniest yeah. thing on a baby's heart tracing on a Labour Ward, I'd be like, right, let's, we just, what do you reckon to a cesarean? Let's call this a day, you know, and get everyone out. And, and that's... And that's not being a good doctor. No. That's that's being a bad doctor. You know, it's doing, against that intuition that you spoke about earlier. That end of the bed. Yeah, and I'd stopped trusting myself. But the truth was, and the thing that, as soon as I realised, made me think, actually, I'm. I do need to, you know, quietly walk towards the door. Was that sometimes, every few years, through no one's fault, however good you are, if you're working on that labour ward as the doctor, you will have some kind of big disaster. It's not about the hours you've put in or how good you are, however the quali- qualifications you've got. It's just the grim fact of the the job. And and people would tell me that to make me feel better, to make me realise that, you know, that was just awful luck and it doesn't reflect on you. It doesn't mean you need to change your practice or whatever. But it made me realise that I couldn't face that ever happening again because my yeah. armour wasn't thick enough and my coping mechanisms, I'd never been taught an actual coping mechanisms, uh, yeah, a mechanism. I had white wine for after work and diaries for, you know, you know after work or, you know, in, in little gaps. And that helps a bit, but it's just not enough. And so that's when I made my, made my exit. And, and some will argue that the, 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 the negative of walking away without fanfare is the kind of, and you touch upon it in Undoctored, is the the mythology of the reason you walked away, of what happened, of how you left. Because they didn't see you go out the door. How did Were you dragged out, kicking and screaming? I'd argue the opposite. That's the benefit of it. You get to have this weird, mythical, I yeah. left. And again, it's like, and there's a moment in the book where you bump into someone, an ex-colleague, and there is this kind of, I heard this happened, I heard this happened. And it's like, oh, right, yeah. no, none of that, but... In my mind, that's a good thing. Enjoy yourselves, guys. Yeah, go to town. But they doctors don't like the the idea, or certainly didn't like the idea of other doctors leaving. Yeah, so they Um, need that. They need it to be something going horrendously wrong. I needed to have gone absolutely cuckoo. Yeah, there's no other way of rationalising it. 
I've I've had people argue with me, and again, not to compare being a touring musician to being a doctor, but I've had people argue with me online before that when I stopped doing music, I had someone say, look, it's okay if you're scared of failure. Like, you can still make... I'm like, no, I'm not. I was just finished. I really loved it. I loved it all and went away on top. He's like, look, I know you're scared, but we believe that you can do another. He's like, dude, stop telling me that I've walked away because I'm scared I've lost it or I haven't got the skin. It's like, no, yeah. I walked away because I, I was... I thought I wasn't going to get a better exit. I had a moment where I went, this is pretty much, as you said, this is as good as it's going to get. I'm going to go over here now and try yeah. and try, try something else. But people won't, people will have their own reasons at all times, you know? Yeah, leave them wanting more. Yeah. Um, although, as the old joke goes, that's not great if you're an anaesthetist. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that's a perfect note to wrap things up on. And I, I want to know, like, what is ahead? Um, obviously, undoctored the story of a medic who ran out of patience is either out now as this as this comes out or, or is out, available. Yeah. yeah, it's out. It's available. So um, what's ahead? What's the plan? Obviously, you've done amazing things in TV now. You've done amazing things in live shows now. You know, uh, what's, what's your focus? Am, I do lots of different things to keep myself interested. So I'm touring at the moment. I've got a show called This Is Gonna Hurt More, which is, you know, some of the good stuff from the first book, plus a lot of stuff from... Uh, from Undoctored. I'm writing a kid's book at the moment. So I've done a couple of kid's books, which I I love because, uh, again, nonfiction, I've basically got the sense of humour of a eight to 12 year old so it works works really well i just take out take out the occasional swear word and it's pretty much exactly how i write for adults i do um, so there's there's that and i'm 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 brewing uh, a new tv thing which is not yet cooked but uh, when it is i will tell you all about it I, lo- I love it well i'm excited f- for all that's ahead particularly if i can consume any of it in a pizza restaurant in portugal <laughs> um thank you for taking the time man i'm really pleased oh, that this came you. around um yeah i've really enjoyed it me too i've had a lovely time cheers thanks so much You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was Adam Kay. I hope you enjoyed that. As I said, if you didn't read This Is Going To Hurt, can't recommend it enough. If you didn't watch it, it's on iPlayer. You're going to adore that. And if you've not read Undoctored yet, again, can't recommend it enough. I just can't recommend Adam enough. Follow him on Twitter. Do all the things. I'll be back next week with another wonderful guest, another person who I've enjoyed on Twitter an awful lot, but we'll get to that next week. Until then, stay safe and stay sane. Ta-ta.